to our event today on central bank communication in a low interest rate environment. It's my great <coughs> pleasure and honor to welcome Benoit Curé today, a member of the executive board of the ECB and a member of the governing council, obviously, of the ECB, uh, who has prepared a speech, um, um, which I think would also be made available on the ECB website. Um, and uh, he will speak for roughly 20, 25 minutes, uh, 30 minutes. Um, and then I will ask him a few questions, but of course also give, give the floor to you so that you, you can ask uh, uh, a few questions uh, on this very important uh, topic that uh, I think is very hotly debated nowadays. And so uh, we very much look forward to uh, your uh, contribution, Benoit, and thank you for being here with, with us today. So thank you very much, uh, uh, Guntan, and uh, it's, a, it's a very great pleasure to be uh, here today um, at Voigel, uh, a place uh, which uh, has always been at the forefront of, uh, of the policy discussion in Europe, uh, and again, once again today, I hope. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to contribute to that discussion. Um, I've prepared uh, thoughts on central bank communication uh, in a low-rate environment, uh, and more specifically about a, a key piece of our communication uh, in that environment, which is forward guidance. So the bulk of my remarks is about forward guidance, how it works, why we have it, um, our experience with it. Uh, I will go through a, a number of... Uh, case events, so a little bit of a forensic study of uh, how forward guidance has worked uh, uh, over recent, uh, um, uh, across recent multi-policy discussions and decisions, uh, and I will also uh, share a few thoughts about uh, the consequences for the future. Um, and, and then I, I'm, I I'll try to be as short as possible. I I'm, I'm very much look forward for the discussion, which can be broader and doesn't have to be only about forward guidance, uh, however interesting. Uh, so I'm happy uh, to answer uh, questions on other uh, ECB-related issues. Um, so let me start with a, with a more general note on central bank communication before I, uh, I, uh, I zoom in on forward guidance. Um, and the, the general note here is that the relationships between central banks and the outside world uh, has evolved uh, over the years. Um, it started from a point of uh, near complete secrecy and uh, we've come all the way to using communication explicitly uh, as a tool of monetary policy. So I would really uh, consider communication as a monetary policy instrument alongside with other monetary policy instruments. Um, and especially dur during the financial crisis, uh, the, the communication efforts of central banks have uh, expanded all across the world. And there are good reasons for this. Uh, to fulfill our mandate, uh, we've injected large amounts of monetary stimulus uh, while also making use of novel instruments. Uh, the monetary policy response has been unprecedented in scale and in scope, uh, which has added further impetus uh, to our drive for uh, accountability and transparency. And we had one example uh, of that this week, and Guntram, you were there here in Brussels already on, uh, on Tuesday, um, where we had a, a report by Transparency International on the ECB, arguing that um, a, uh, a broader scale and scope of central bank intervention um, raises the bar in terms of accountability and, and transparency, which we agree. Uh, and on that, at that event uh, last, last Tuesday, we went into the details of 
how and why uh, central banks can, uh, can uh, become more accountable and more transparent. Um, um, and we are very committed to it, and that's not the subject of my speech today. Uh, so I can defer to the discussion uh, that we had uh, 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 earlier this week um, to discuss the institutional dimension of that discussion on, on central bank communication. But today I want to focus on the functional dimension uh, rather than the institutional dimension, uh, meaning uh, the, the relationship between the monetary authorities and financial markets uh, and uh, how it matters for uh, the implementation and transmission of monetary policy. So, uh, why is central bank communication a tool for monetary policy? Uh, well, uh, simply speaking, that's because in today's economies, uh, the transmission of monetary policy impulses starts with asset prices, and then it extends beyond financial markets, obviously, um, to the real economy, which is not what I'm going to discuss today. It's very important, obviously. It's not what I'm going to discuss today. Uh, what I'm going to discuss today is the first segment of this monetary policy transmission chain, which is interaction between the central bank and financial markets, which is the start, the first, the first, uh, the first step of monetary policy transmission, if you want. Um, and we believe that having a transparent monetary policy uh, framework uh, enhances our ability uh, to steer financial conditions uh, and um, ultimately ensure that the effective transmission of monetary policy um, um, will, uh, uh, will, um, uh, will take place. Um, and that relationship between central bank policy communication and financial market conditions uh, has received even greater attention um, when central banks have been approaching interest rate levels that were generally judged to offer uh, limited or uh, no further room for maneuver. So let's call it the, the lower bound. Uh, so what I'm going to argue now is that uh, central bank communication matters even more uh, when monetary policy uh, is at the lower bound or near to the lower bound. And that's our experience uh, over the uh, uh, recent uh, months and years. So I will argue that uh, in, the in the vicinity of the effective lower bound for, for policy rates, communication becomes even more important. Uh, and uh, while there are similarities to communication further away from the lower bound, there are also uh, very peculiar challenges uh, to communicating when you're close to the lower bound. Um, I said before that monetary policy is transmitted uh, uh, mainly or at least initially through asset prices. Since financial markets are there to price future cash flows, um, they are inherently forward-looking, this we know. And this means that monetary policy works largely by affecting expectations of uh, future policy uh, interest rates, which is true both at the lower bound and away from the lower bound. That's always true. Uh, but uh, the consequences can be different. Away from the lower bound, monetary policy steers expectations mainly by sending signals through the current level of central bank interest rates and by communicating on the central bank's assessment on the macroeconomic outlook which is what we always do in monetary policy. But at the lower bound, the ability of central banks to ease the stance of monetary policy uh, is constrained, obviously, by definition, or by construction. Um, and instead, uh, we must increasingly rely on influencing expectations directly, uh, instead of indirectly through uh, movements in the, in the policy rate. Um, and this we can do by communicating about the likely path of future policy rates, which is what we call forward guidance. So in other words, the lower bound puts a premium on clear communication, not only because it represents unusual circumstances that require the central bank to explain itself carefully, 
but also because it elevates the importance of communication uh, inside the monetary policy toolbox. And to start with a, uh, with a, uh, with a theoretical benchmark, uh, assume, uh, assume capital markets would be frictionless. Uh, if capital markets are frictionless uh, at the effective lower bound, forward guidance would be the only way to ease the monetary policy stance. Uh, in that setup, central bank asset purchases would be ineffective, as we know, uh, if capital markets would be totally, uh, if, all, if all assets were perfectly substitutable, uh, asset purchases, QE, would be ineffective, wouldn't make sense. Um, and whether assets are held on the balance sheet of the public or private sector would not change term premium uh, on interest rates, uh, and hence it would not change uh, long-term interest rates. So communication would be essential. Well, of course, we know that capital markets are not frictionless, and that's, what we do, that's why we're doing QE. Uh, it's open, it opens an important role for central banks to, uh, to intervene in asset markets uh, via outright purchases uh, and to act on the term premium, using or exploiting the fact that uh, markets are not perfect and that assets are, different assets are not perfect substitutes. So in that environment, which is a real-world environment, forward guidance is one tool, not the only one, uh, we have um, to, um, uh, to, to make up for the, for the fact, for the reality, that the, uh, the space uh, for changes in the short-term policy rate is, uh, is constrained. Um, but let me, let me focus on, on how forward guidance works uh, by looking at the case of the ECB and our experience with it. So I start with general remarks uh, before explaining our current forward guidance framework. So, for forward guidance to be credible, uh, it ultimately has to be anchored in the central bank's mandate. Um, any pronouncement we make about the likely path of our policy instruments uh, is inevitably based on current information, and it conveys our assessment of where the economy is most likely headed over the uh, policy-relevant policy horizon. That type of forward guidance, so conveying expectations, that type of forward guidance is uh, in the literature called Delphic, um, so here, that's a, a taxonomy and terminology uh, 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 introduced by Campbell and co-authors, which is widely used in that, in that discussion. Um, so Delphic forward guidance uh, is like the oracle of Delphi. Uh, it basically consists of a forecast, uh, a forecast by the central bank of how the economy will likely evolve. Uh, and, and it's not a commitment. Um, but our forward guidance is also intended to clarify our reaction function. So it's not only about conveying information on the future state of the economy, it's also about clarifying our reaction function, the way we would react uh, to that future state of the economy. The reaction function maps the economic environment into a space of instruments, so in our case, rates and, and, and purchases. So to put it simply, it relates what we think will happen to what we will do if it happens. Uh, and to continue with the Greek uh, mythology, um, this means that there is also an Odyssean, an Odyssean element to forward guidance, uh, like uh, Odysseus uh, tying himself to the mast of the ship in order to resist uh, the songs of the sirens, as we know. Uh, this conveys a commitment to react uh, in specific ways to contingencies that might arise. So you always have these two components to forward guidance, the Delphic component and the Odyssean component. And an extreme form of Odyssean forward guidance, uh, which I will not discuss here, uh, because I believe it's not consistent with our mandate, uh, would consist in committing to an unconditional path of interest rates in the future, irrespective of contingencies. So we would say that's what we're going to do in the future, whatever happens in the real world. I believe that's not what we should do, and that's, that's not what we are doing, and that would be the extreme form of uh, Odyssean forward guidance. 
very, being very tightly tied to the mast. Um, so that's how far theory goes. Um, so in practice, and applying that distinction between Delphic and Odyssean guidance to uh, what we've been doing on, on interest rates, when we say that we expect, so quote unquote, we expect interest rates to remain at present all lower levels for an extended period of time, which is what we say in, uh, in the Governing Council's introductory statement, we convey both our assessment of how we see inflation most likely evolving over the policy rate event horizon, and also how we intend to map this outlook into levels of our policy rates. Um, so here you can see that our forward guidance has two components. There is a structural component which uh, corresponds to our reaction function, uh, our monetary policy strategy, uh, which is firmly anchored in our primary mandate. Um, but also, when central banks make use of different instruments, which is the case in today's world, not only rates, but also possibly volumes, uh, our reaction function also includes the mapping of any desired monetary policy stance uh, into instruments such as rates and purchases. And that's new to the discussion. Uh, previously, this would have been only about rates. Now it's about rates and volumes. So you can think of it ideally as a, as a fine -tuned, uh, finely tuned machine that we constantly feed with our assessment uh, of the likely uh, future path of, uh, of inflation, um, which, is, which itself is a variable component uh, because it evolves as a result of the incoming data stream. So we have a data stream. We revise our expectation of future inflation, and then we feed it into our reaction function, and the reaction function produces expectations for, for instruments. Um, and the same two components, the structural component, the stable component, uh, and the variable component also apply to our forward guidance on purchases, uh, which contains uh, three main elements. First element, you have clear Delphic communication uh, on expected volumes and the purchase horizon. So as you know, currently until December 17. That's an expectation, so that's Delphic. But we have an element of state contingency which I would qualify as Odyssean, because that's a commitment by the Governing Council, that clarifies uh, the way the Governing Council would react uh, should it not see a sustained adjustment in the path of inflation consistent with its inflation aim. So you have the expectation, and then you have the reaction function in case of contingency. And third, since last December, we've added an additional clarification, which is also an Odyssean clarification, uh, which expresses our preparedness to increase the size and or the duration of the asset purchase program under certain conditions. So namely, we say, if the outlook becomes less favorable or if financial conditions become inconsistent with further progress toward a sustained adjustment in the path of inflation, then we could increase uh, purchases or we could extend uh, the, uh, the horizon. So when you put all of this together, you can see that our current forward guidance uh, encompasses a, a carefully expanded series of expectations involving both key policy rates and asset purchases. So you have got the two dimensions. Um, and indeed, guidance on policy rates is linked to the uh, timeline of the asset purchase program. So the two dimensions are not independent from each other. They are intertwined or, or related. Um, with the governing council's expectation on policy rates being that they will remain at the present level or lower, quote unquote, well past the horizon of our net asset purchases. So that's the link between the two dimensions. Um, and the logics, between this guide, the logics behind this guidance, this sequencing of volumes and rates, uh, to put it very simply, is that uh, it may be beneficial to retain full control over the expected path of future short-term policy rates, 
while allowing a gradual decompression of the term premium um, if and when uh, we see solid progress uh, towards the sustained adjustment in the path of inflation. So we control the yield curve in two, in two ways. We control the, 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 the slope of the yield curve by um, communicating expectations on future policy rates. That's about the direction which, which, uh, uh, which uh, feeds into the slope of the yield curve. And then through asset purchases, we control the, the term premium around that baseline expectation. Uh, and we believe that um, the sequencing should be first to decompress the term premium around uh, the expectation and then to play on the expectation. And that's why we're saying that we, we won't uh, raise rates uh, before uh, well beyond the horizon of our asset purchases. So there is a sequence here. Um, at any rate, for the forward guidance, both on rates and on purchases to be credible, we need to keep our policy expectations well aligned with our evolving assessment uh, of the balance of risks and of the outlook for inflation. So that's the Delphic part of the guidance, um, that if we want our guidance to be credible, we have to be uh, faithful to it, meaning that it has to, be, um, it has to remain aligned with our own expectations. Uh, and I believe we would pay a high price in terms of credibility if we failed to adapt our forward guidance once we have changed our views on the outlook. So there is a cost of uh, 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 not adjusting uh, uh, or, or having a, a gap between the forward guidance and what we really believe about the future outlook. And I will come to that point later. Um, but uh, one immediate consequence here is that a, a too gradual adjustment of the forward guidance uh, could ultimately be quite costly. So the forward guidance has to be adjusted when uh, the underlying flow of information changes. Um, and there is a very nice uh, paper by Jeremy Steen from Harvard uh, and, and, and a co-author, uh, Adi Sunderham, uh, elaborating on that notion that uh, central banks may have moved towards what they call a gradualist equilibrium, meaning that uh, central banks make gradual changes to policy tools and to communication in order not to upset markets. Uh, but in such an environment, so here I follow Stein and, uh, and, and his co-author, in such an environment, any change uh, to uh, the uh, central bank's policy uh, inclination will have a major effect on asset prices. If you wait for too long, uh, to adjust your guidance, you have a pent-up gap uh, uh, between, uh, uh, between the guidance and reality, uh, and eventually the reaction of bond markets can be, uh, can be uh, even worse. So if, if ex ante uh, you, are, you have a gradualist stance because you fear uh, bond market volatility, uh, this can end exposed with too much bond market volatility because adjustment will be too late and, and, too, uh, and, too, uh, and too abrupt. That's the, that's the argument by Jeremy Steele. And the reason is that markets have come to expect that initial, any initial move by the central bank, and no matter how incremental, uh, would be followed by many similar moves in the same direction. So when you finally move, markets expect that it's only the first of a series of moves, and the, 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 the market reaction can be quite strong. That's a 1994 example, if you wish. It's a way to rationalize the 1994 uh, US uh, experience. Um, and that is likely to be, uh, uh, to be uh, more pronounced in conditions where there is an exceptionally large amount of monetary policy stimulus in place. And that makes the expectations of an announcement of a change in the monetary policy stance uh, much more important for markets. So the risk of uh, over market overreaction is quite, is quite high. So, with, so these were all the kind of general and theoretical considerations around forward guidance. So now what's our experience with it? Um, so it's clearly too early to draw definitive conclusions. We're still in the lower bound environment. So this is a definitive uh, 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 um, 
uh, study on forward guidance will be, uh, will be made when we're out of the lower bound environment and when, when rates are up, uh, we're not there. So everything I say now is, is tentative. Uh, but we do have evidence that our forward guidance has been successful uh, in, in several respects. First, um, it has had a stabilizing influence on market prices that reflect expectations of our monetary policy instruments and that are important for the chain of transmission of monetary policy. For instance, we have evidence that the sensitivity of forward rates to macroeconomic news has declined at the time of our very first forward guidance announcement in July 13. So this has muted the uh, sensitivity of, of the forward curve to, uh, to macroeconomic announcements. Um, and that sensitivity has remained low, uh, or lower than historical regularities uh, would, uh, would suggest uh, ever since. So in, uh, in, uh, in plain English, that means that markets trust our assessment of the economy and the implied path of policy rates, and they don't react too much to short-term economic news, or less than before. Um, second, by stating that domestic policies are likely to differ from those elsewhere, so that's the international dimension, forward guidance has insulated uh, your area financial conditions from external shocks that would have resulted in an unwarranted tightening of, uh, of our monetary policy stance. And it has facilitated nominal exchange rate adjustments uh, consistent with different monetary conditions in different places, uh, which themselves reflect different circumstances. So it has, uh, it has supported the international adjustment uh, through flexible exchange rates according to different circumstances in different, uh, in different regions. Third, it has been a source of additional monetary policy accommodation at a time uh, where the room for cuts in the key policy rates has been very limited. Um, and let me explain that point in more, in more detail. Why is that additional monetary policy accommodation? Well, the impact of asset purchases on market prices is likely to depend critically on how these purchases are communicated to the market. The fact that we chose to communicate as part of our forward guidance and from the very start an expectation of the intended, intended horizon of the asset purchase program um, is likely to have been a key determinant of the success of the program. So in our view, it has enhanced the, uh, the, the market impact of the program. Uh, and the reason is that providing guidance on the horizon helps markets to form a more accurate expectations about the likely amount of purchases, conditional on the price stability outlook, reducing uncertainty and reducing term premia and risk premia. So it has, it has, in that sense, boosted the, the price impact of the, of the program. And this has been confirmed by recent uh, empirical research uh, when uh, flanked by communication on, on the likely size, announcement of purchase programs have been found to be to lead to a much greater decline in stock market uncertainty compared with announcements that omit a size indication. So when you, do, when you study uh, QE announcements across the board and, and, and across time, across central banks and across time, you see that when it comes uh, with uh, guidance on volumes, uh, it, has, it, has, it has a greater impact. Uh, so that's, that's uh, a paper by Gunther Kuhnen and, and, and other authors that is just out. Um, the first element of, the, of our guidance on, on purchases was reinforced by the second element, which is the, the state contingent uh, leg of the forward guidance, which I explained earlier. Um, by, by establishing a, an intimate link to our price stability objective, you, through the language we use, sustained adjustment towards price stability, etc., uh, we make clear that the expected volume could well be larger if it would take longer for inflation to converge back to, uh, to levels uh, close to 
So in practice, that means that by clarifying our reaction function in this way, markets were able to better anticipate our reactions, uh, and this has enhanced the effectiveness of policy by front-loading the required accommodation. Um, this has not always been a gentle ride, uh, and I will come back to it in a minute with examples, uh, but I think it's fair to say that the state contingent leg of, of, the, of, the, um, uh, of the forward guidance on purchases has supported and, and continues to support the, the price discovery function of markets by helping markets know more about uh, future, expected future outcomes and, and the consequences in terms of, of asset purchases. So overall, the, the combination of time and state contingent forward guidance has been instrumental in supporting powerful portfolio rebalancing effects and the compression of term premium. Uh, and in turn, it has led to a broad-based easing of financial conditions uh, in the Eurozone. Um, and I think the evidence uh, speaks for itself. Uh, Eurozone uh, bank lending rates to firms have fallen by some 80 basis points since we started purchasing uh, covered bonds in October 14, which was the start of the whole quantitative program. And as you remember, we started with covered bonds in October 14, and then we moved to, to, to other asset classes, um, ABSs, government securities. And uh, our uh, empirical analysis, analysis attributes a significant portion of this fall in the bank lending rates uh, to the workings of our asset purchase program. And there is, a, there is a ECB research which is out on this. Um, and if effective forward guidance and implementation of the asset purchase program may also have helped to reinforce forward guidance on rates. So that's another example of the interactions between the two parts of forward guidance. Um, that's a channel that's labeled in the literature as a signaling channel of forward guidance. So the argument in the literature goes that large-scale bond purchases would be perceived by markets as preventing policymakers from raising rates quickly, as this would cause losses on the balance sheet of central banks. So that's, a, that's an argument. I'm not too much a fan of that argument, to be clear. But that's an argument you find in the, in the academic literature, that uh, 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 central, uh, central, bank, central banks purchasing assets, put, they put their money where their, where their mouth is. Uh, that's an argument you find to explain why it reinforces uh, the, the signaling channel. Um, so at the same time, I would not deny that communication on policy intentions uh, has been challenging and remains challenging. Uh, we can't always be sure that uh, our forward guidance will work. Much of the challenges arise, uh, of course, from the fact that communication is not a one-way street. Um, it's not only communication to markets, and there is an interaction between central banks and markets. And that's, that's very important. I want to spend uh, one minute on this. There is an interaction between central bank communication and financial markets, uh, which creates a well-known risk that financial conditions uh, could become de-anchored, uh, or which creates some, uh, some specularity, if you want to put it that way, uh, in financial markets. Um, and there is a nice quote by, by Paul Samuelson, which I, I think is... Uh, 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 extremely, uh, extremely uh, relevant. Uh, Paul Samuelson famously compared the central banker uh, who reads too much from movements in bond markets. So if we rely too much on what's going on in bond markets, Paul, Paul Samuelson said, uh, well, that's just like a monkey uh, who discovers his reflection uh, in the mirror and thinks that by looking at the reaction of that monkey in the mirror, including the surprises of the monkey, uh, he's getting new information. So as monkeys start moving, you see the other monkey in the, in the mirror also moving, you move even more, and it ends in confusion. So that summarizes a little bit the pitfalls of uh, the interaction between central bankers and, uh, and financial markets. Um, so that's a useful uh, warning for us. Um, and let me explain by giving two concrete examples of that kind of interactions. 
First example, so that's the forensic part of my speech. Um, the first, first, the first example uh, refers to our decision in, de in December 15, when we announced a substantial package of policy measures, including a six-month extension of the asset purchase program. You may, you may remember that, December 15. That was not so long ago. Uh, six months extension of the asset purchase program, 10 basis point cut in the deposit facility rate, uh, and the reinvestment of the principal payments uh, on the maturing bonds. Um, to give you an idea of the size, uh, the additional purchases alone, including the reinvestment, amounted to almost 700 uh, billion euros of bonds, uh, that additional bonds that we ex expected to extract from the market. So that package was a very substantial uh, accommodate, accommodating package. It was, it was adding 700 uh, billion euros to uh, the size of the balance sheet of the ECB. Uh, looking forward. Yet the market uh, was, uh, was not impressed. Market paid a little heed. Bond yields tightened even uh, measurably on that day. Uh, we observed a hawkish revision of expectations about the tra trajectory of ECB policy rates and increased uncertainty on our, on our reaction function. Uh, Market intelligence following the decision suggested that the, absen the absence of clearer forward guidance on the possibility of a further cut in the deposit facility rate led to a sharp repricing uh, in the Aonia uh, forward market. So, two, two conclusions. First, the, int the introduction of negative rates, uh, while having a powerful easing effect on the monetary policy stance, has created uncertainty about how low we are prepared to go with our key interest rates because it has, it has, in a sense, lifted a hurdle or lifted a, a border, a boundary, uh, to how low rates could go. But this has, this, this has been very powerful in terms of the monetary policy stance, and we have are, we are, uh, 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 no regrets with that. Uh, we believe it has, it has helped to stabilize the short end of the curve. It has been powerful in terms of, the, of monetary policy accommodation, but also at the same time, it has created uncertainty. Those markets were confused about how, how low the, the DFR could, could, go, could possibly go. Second, any perceived communication on the lower bound uh, is a strong signal in itself. Uh, recall that um, on that day, markets undertook a repricing, uh, although the governing council in each and every introductory statement had kept an implicit reference to the initial forward guidance of July 13, namely that it expects rates to remain uh, at present or lower levels. But this was not enough. So incidentally, this, this experience squares with recent findings in the literature. Researchers at the ECB have shown that if central bank communication leads to different interpretations by market participants, in this case, different interpretations about the willingness to cut the deposit facility rate further and the likely lower bound for, for the deposit facility rate, uh, they tend to look to financial market prices to find about um, how their peers have interpreted the same statement, which gives rise to the kind of uh, reflexivity or specularity that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and this makes it more likely that they will react to exogenous disturbances, which in turn can increase uncertainty. So let's call it uh, uh, sunspot equilibria if you want to be uh, bombastic. Um, at face value, uh, that, calls for, that could call for self-standing forward guidance on the lower bound. Like, we're not going to lower the DFR lower than X minus X, X percent, X basis point. But so I had a full, spiel, a full speech uh, last year in Yale, last summer, on the, on, the, on the negative rate and the negative deposit facility rate, uh, where I concluded that uh, there is great uncertainty about uh, the estimates of um, 
what I call the economic lower bound, that is the level, the, the level of the negative deposit facility rate at which further reductions in rates would be more likely to lead to a tightening rather to, than to an easing of the stance. So there is a, probably a point, negative point, where lowering rates becomes counterproductive, um, in particular because of the impact on the financial sector. Uh, the issue is that we don't know that, that level. Uh, and at that time, that was July last year, I concluded prudently that the current level of the DFR, which is minus 40, uh, is still far away from the physical lower bound, that is the point where households will start substituting with cash and, and drawing cash out of, 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 the, of their bank account. We're still far away from that level. Uh, and we are safely above the economic lower bound, which is a point where lowering rates would become counterproductive in terms of monetary policy transmission. So there is a, there is a hierarchy. Physical lower bound is the lowest, where people will start buying safes and uh, withdrawing banknotes. We are far away from that. Uh, but then somewhere in between that point and the point we are today, there, there is probably a point where we can, uh, uh, we can uh, bring the deposit facility rate, but that would become counterproductive in terms of monetary policy transmission uh, because of the, uh, of the impairment it would cause to the bank lending channel. Uh, we are not there, but we don't know exactly that level. Um, so would it be credible for central banks to, to provide guidance on, on such, uh, such estimates, which are sketchy and, uh, and probably time-varying, by the way? Because that economic lower bound var uh, can vary over time. It can also uh, it differ a lot across jurisdictions, depending on whether banks are lending fixed rate variable rates, whether they are borrowing fixed rate or variable rates, and so on and so forth. So that's very... Uh, 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 there is a lot of uncertainty around it. So my answer would be no. Uh, it would not be very credible for us to provide a, a clear number here, um, at least maybe until uh, we can say with more confidence where the, where the lower bound might be. But, but today we don't know. Uh, so there is inherent uncertainty here. Uh, but in respect of what we do know, uh, communication should be as clear as possible, in particular when, when uncertainty uh, about non-standard measures is, is, is considerable. Which brings me to my next observation. So that's my second case study, um, December 17. Uh, we uh, decide to extend the intended horizon of uh, uh, um, asset purchases, but to reduce the monthly purchase starting from April uh, 17. So we say we're going to buy until, we expect to buy until December 17, but starting from April 17, uh, we lower the uh, amount from 80 billion to 60 billion, which, which, which is happens, which is what happens starting uh, uh, on next Monday, actually. <laughs> that's, that's a topical time to comment on that, uh, uh, when, uh, when, uh, when we're in April. So it was feared that a reduction in the pace of purchases, despite the longer horizon, could cause instability in financial markets, uh, similar to those uh, during the so-called uh, taper tantrum episode in the US uh, in 13. And uh, if you come back to that day in December, uh, in, uh, uh, back in December 16, the market comments were full of references to the, to the taper tantrum. ECB is, low, is cutting on the uh, pace of purchases. Um, is that tapering? Is that not tapering? Etc. That was the discussion. And these risks were uh, uh, also visible in market surveys, uh, which suggested that the market was almost unanimous uh, before our decision in believing that the ECB would continue purchases at 80 billion per month, also beyond March 17. So that decision to cut from 80 to 60 uh, came as a surprise uh, to, to markets. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, uh, these fears proved unfounded. Uh, the, the policy announcement was made with broad approval by market participants, which 
safeguarded the continued support uh, for the recovery uh, in the Eurozone. Um, and I see two potential explanations here, two potential trains of thought that can square the benign market response uh, with the signals we had from surveys and with the Fed experience. Um, so in my view, the success of that December 16 decision uh, could be attributed to the additional easing bias which was attached to the APP, which I mentioned earlier. So the fact that we, we keep the option to go back to 80 or to whatever other number, but to, to increase back uh, the, the pace of purchases in case, uh, of, uh, in case down salaries could materialize. Um, that's the first line of thinking, that the expected reduction in the pace was offset by the optionality uh, contained in the, uh, in the, the possibilities that we, we, we would, we would, uh, we would uh, uh, go back to a higher pace. And the other line of thinking would be that the available market surveys had painted a biased and, and misleading picture, so the market was wrong. Market survey, at least the market surveys were wrong about uh, what were the true uh, market expectations. So which line of thinking is likely to be closer to reality? Uh, in, my view, in my view, both are relevant. Um, the decision to communicate that we stand ready to increase the size and or the duration of the program under certain conditions assured investors that there was no change in our reaction function. Um, and rather, the, the reduction in the pace of purchases was a, a mere reflection of the diminished deflationary tail risk. So it was a Delphic signal that we, our expectations uh, over the, the, the risk of deflation had receded, and we just had to adjust our forward guidance accordingly. So that was a Delphic signal, which was embedded uh, in, a, in a clear Odyssean forward guidance, including the, the fact that our reaction function included the possibility to react to negative downside risk. So that's one way to, to explain it. Um, but that additional easing bias uh, is important, but it's unlikely to explain the whole story. One reason is that some market participants uh, voiced, concerned, voiced concerns about our, our ability to increase the monthly pace of purchases, given the scarcity of bonds available in the market and given the constraints on our asset pro purchase program. Other market participants adopted our willingness to do so, to step up uh, purchases once more. Uh, both concerns seem to cast dirt on the credibility of that part of the forward guidance. Wrongly, in my view, considering our proven track record of, of decisive action in the face of adverse shocks. So anytime we had to react, we did react. So the, the depths in the market over our ability or willingness to react, in my view, are, are misguided, uh, because that's not what the track record says. Uh, but that might have been the market. But if we take these depths seriously, it means that markets might have discounted more strongly the possibility of a more abrupt end to the asset purchase program uh, post-March 17 than what available surveys might have suggested. So there was a disconnect between what we knew from markets and what markets actually thought. thought. Um, that might be an example of a, of a, uh, of a mechanism which has been uh, explained uh, by Hyun Shin uh, in a paper in, in, in 2013, where uh, Hyun Shin argued that we should not think of the market as an homogeneous entity uh, with its own coherent set of beliefs and expectations. I mean, too often we say the market believes that, the markets think that, which, I mean, there is no such thing as a market. It's, it's market participants. They are not homogenous. Um, the marketplace is diverse. Prices at any given point in time aggregate many different and indeed, indeed op opposing, uh, sometimes conflicting opinions. Investors with the most uh, strident, strident views, the strongest views, that is, investors with the highest degree of conviction, may have the largest influence on pricing in the short term, so that's the core of the Hyun Shin argument, 
uh, because these market participants are willing to make the strongest commitment, uh, both in terms of the size of the position they take and also in terms of leverage, because there are more leverage. So the, the, um, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the marginal buyer, if you want to put it that way, uh, 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 determining, the, determining the marginal price uh, may not be reflecting the average sentiment in the market. Uh, and you can see what I'm getting at in that case. Perhaps the overall benign market response to our December 16 announcement uh, may have frustrated those who expected an outright tapering decision, perhaps because they doubted our willingness or our ability to continue purchasing, and they were proven wrong by our announcement. So that suggests that, the expect that expectations gleaned from market survey may be imper imperfect, imperfect reflections of true market expectations. Um, of course, it may also have been the case that we had not been clear enough in our own communication um, that investors misunderstood our fall guidance or our reaction function, which is different from doubts about our willingness to act. To some extent, when there are too many disparate voices, such risks of miscommunication, uh, Alan Blinder called it the danger of cacophony when it comes to central bank communication, um, can be mitigated by putting discipline on communication by monetary policy committees, so in our case, the governing council of the ECB. So one, one other conclusion here is that the case for disciplined communication is even stronger at the lower bound to avoid confusing the market. Um, and this is not to say that we should ignore what investors think or expect. Market intelligence is an important input uh, into, our, into our analysis. It rather means that the successful sequence of policymaking, in particular in the presence of unconventional policy measures, is first to be clear about our reaction function including how the expected monetary policy stance would be mapped into different monetary policy instruments. Second, to disclose frequently our assessment of the state of the economy and its likely evolution. And third, to act accordingly. So to remain on top of market expectations, to put it simply. In doing so, central banks can lead the markets and minimize the risk of being led by the markets. Uh, and by fostering the market's understanding of our reaction function, we reduce market volatility and we support both the effectiveness and the predictability of monetary policy actions. So I come to the conclusion. Uh, with these experiences and challenges in mind, um, allow me as a conclusion a few thoughts on the, on, the, on the current state of our forward guidance. And that's my conclusion. As you know, earlier this month, the Governing Council decided to leave its forward guidance unchanged. Thus, we have maintained both easing biases, the easing bias on purchases, and the easing bias on key interest rates, meaning that rates could go lower. This has been unchanged by the Governing Council. The EU area economy has undoubtedly made a great deal of progress. The recovery has been steadily broadening, firming. It may even have gained some further momentum since the beginning of this year. In fact, we may now see the full potential of our policy measures unfolding. That, of course, raises the question as to whether the time has come to communicate a change uh, in our policy expectations. As I said earlier, our fall guidance framework consists of two key components, a structural component and a variable component. Changing the structural component is not an option, as it would leave markets in a state of uncertainty with risks of excess volatility and even a destabilization or de-anchoring of, of financial conditions. But the variable component of the guidance demands that we regularly reassess the medium-term price stability outlook, that we run this assessment through our reaction function, and that we decide whether or not our policy expectations on the horizon and pace of our asset purchases on the level of our policy rates, so that's the 
lower present or lower level, and on their expected uh, length, that's well past the horizon, uh, need adjustment. So don't touch the reaction function. That's, uh, uh, that, uh, or the bar is quite high to change the reaction function because that risks creating uh, too much market uncertainty. But on the other hand, uh, we have a duty to change, to, to, to feed the reaction function with the incoming flow of data. Should we conclude that an adjustment is needed, we should not hesitate to adapt our communication. Uh, abandoning the intimate, the intimate link between our policy expectations and our assessment of the progress towards a sustained adjustment in the path of inflation would risk creating the false impression that we have changed our reaction function, which would be a dangerous path towards time inconsistency. So if you let the reaction function, if you let the expectations drift too much away from what is warranted by economic conditions and what you actually think, uh, you may risk creating the impression that the reaction function has changed, and, that, and there is a huge cost for doing that. Well, of course, should we, should, should we decide to change our policy expectations on the back of an improved uh, economic landscape? That does not mean that we should not lower rates or increase the pace of purchases in any state of the world. It just means that, given the current outlook, it seems increasingly less likely that we will have to do so. In a similar way, any decision to change our policy expectations does not prejudice further policy steps. There are no automatic implications for our policy tools. It's natural that a potential change in expectations first has to withstand the test of time. Ultimately also, the choice of sequencing of policy instruments will be the outcome of our regular assessment of the medium-term price stability outlook. And that will reflect the state-dependent nature of our expectations of the horizon over which our policy instruments are likely to be maintained. So the, the discussion on the sequencing of policy instruments, which is very much in the public now, uh, that's just part of the regular reassessment. And here, let me be clear. The latest incoming data have shifted the balance of risks for growth towards neutral territory, in my view. At the same time, measures of underlying inflation in the Eurozone remain subdued. Our projected path of inflation still remains highly conditional on our policy stance. In line with our forward guidance on the asset purchase program, this clearly suggests that current expectations on the intended horizon of our purchases, as encapsulated in our introductory statement, and on the sequencing of policy instruments, today uh, remain valid. And thank you for your attention. Okay, um, thank, thank you very much um, for, um, for this um, uh, very encompassing uh, speech um, where we learned a lot about uh, uh, Odysseus and, and Delphi. So, so thank you. That, that was, I think, a very handy way of, and a very concrete way of thinking about, about forward guidance. Um, so, uh, so I think that that was very useful. Now, before I'm, I, I open to the, for, uh, to the floor, let me uh, sort of push you on, on one or two uh, points that, um, uh, I, I mean, some of the points I, I think you probably already answered, but perhaps you can just uh, reiterate some of, some of it. But let me, let me ask you uh, uh, really again on this, this interaction between, between forward guidance and, and quantitative easing. And you, you emphasized very much that forward guidance, of course, has also a quantitative element in the sense that you commit to buy a certain amount of, uh, of bonds uh, let's say I think when was it in December um, when when you announced uh, another another 700 billion, which is a, is a way of of doing doing forward guidance. Um, but then there is of course forward guidance that refers to rates, 
um, basically committing to keep future rates uh, uh, low even when, uh, uh, and that was, would be a sort of an Odyssean element, even when inflation starts picking up. And so, so I guess my question is, how, how do the two relate? I mean, once, once you have QE, you, you directly influence the, the, the long-term rates uh, by, by purchasing uh, in these markets. Do, do you then still need um, uh, forward guidance um, on, on the rates? Yeah, I think the two are, the two are definitely uh, uh, complements. They complement each other. Uh, but be, before, before going to that, I would like, to, I would like to, to, to precise or maybe to correct what you said. Sure that the, the forward guidance uh, is not about uh, keeping rates low, even if inflation picks up, which right. is the way but you put so it. Uh, forward guidance is about uh, uh, keeping interest rates low as long as we don't see a sustained adjustment of inflation towards uh, being closer, lower than 2% and close to 2%, which is a big difference. That's why I said I insisted very much on the fact that forward guidance has, has to be uh, anchored to our mandate. Uh, which is uh, bringing inflation back to uh, close to 2% and below 2%. For the same reason, by the way, um, I would not personally uh, subscribe to a version of the forward guidance which would imply overshooting uh, the 2% uh, 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 objective for a given period of time to make up for these periods where we've been right. below 2%, which is very much fashionable in the academic literature. Yes. I don't think that's consistent with our multi-policy strategy. There are different views about it, but... Uh, Personally, I don't think that uh, that uh, would be consistent with uh, with what we've been doing. Uh, forward guidance is a way to uh, is uh, has to be consistent with the uh, with the close to two percent, lower than two percent uh, uh, objective, um, which in a sense ties to the first my first remark that in a world where there is so much uncertainty around, where our instruments have been di diverse in terms of broad in terms of scope and and, and size. Uh, it is very important for us to uh, to stick to our narrow mandate, which is an inflation mandate. So anything that would suggest that that would blur through the forward guidance, that would blur the mandate, I think uh, would uh, would be extremely detrimental, not only in terms of um, <coughs> effectiveness towards financial markets, but also in terms of broader democratic accountability. So that's the link with the first part yeah, of the discussion. Yeah. So that's the first remark. Mm. Um, second, uh, on the two legs of the forward guidance, volumes and and, 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 and prices. Uh, we need both. Both have been useful. Uh, and I, I very much think that both are uh, reinforcing each other. For instance, we very much see uh, the, um, um, the, the negative um, deposit facility rate and generally the fact that rates have been kept very low and very stable at the short end of the curve as something that has empowered the uh, asset purchase program. So you see that positive feedback here. Uh, negative one of the... Um, one of the um, rationals for the negative facility rate is also to uh, facilitate and incentivize uh, the portfolio balance channel. So to, to incentivize, incentivize banks to use money for uh, other purposes, which is right. lending to the real economy. So that's an example of how the two can interact. So I, I see very much a positive interaction here. But that also means that, also means that uh, looking forward and depending on the state of the economy, we'll have to reassess the... Uh, the relative in int intensity of the two components depending on the way they interact. So maybe the, uh, the, um, uh, the additional strength, the, 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 the booster to the asset purchase program which is, which is, uh, which is brought by the, the negative deposit facility rate, that was very important and very useful at a time where deflationary risks were present. 
that might be less important today. So maybe there is a case for recalibration here. That's not a discussion that we had so far. As I said in my conclusion, that's not a discussion that we're having today, but uh, it's a legitimate discussion. So at some point down the road, we'll have the discussion on uh, whether such a low level of the DFR uh, is still warranted to, uh, to boost the asset purchase program, and maybe not. Mm -hmm. But that's not the discussion we're having today. That will come later. Right. Well, can, can I, since you mentioned now the deposit rate, can I, can I follow up a little bit more on what you said on the deposit rate? I, I think you made this distinction between the, I think you called it a physical lower bound, which is mm. basically when, when people start uh, withdrawing cash and so, so you know, basically uh, uh, further lowering wouldn't be effective. Um, and, and I think you called it an economic bound uh, or something, something of that sort. Yeah. Uh, which um, is basically, I think you characterize it as, um, uh, you know, a, a further lowering at that point would uh, be such a burden on financial institutions that uh, it would, would undermine uh, its effectiveness. And you said we are well above that, uh, that, um, that um, or we are above that economic bound, but you also said it's difficult to measure it. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, what is the characteristics and what are the indications uh, from which you, you would draw that we are above this, this economic bound? Um, um, that what makes you confident that we are above this economic bound? I, I'm sure that many, many bankers um, think very differently about that already. Uh, and so, so I guess it would be interesting to hear from you what is, I mean, against what can you really measure this? We're not, we're not making monetary policy for the bankers, uh, nor are we doing monetary policy for the, for the butchers or the, or the fish sellers or right. uh, any uh, particular economic activity. So what matters for us is the, the impact on prices eventually. Um, so starting with the physical lower bound, I think it's pretty clear that there has been no impact so far. We don't see any kind of trend, any kind of acceleration in the demand for banknotes, for instance that would have been triggered by, the, by rates being negative or by, by rates being more negative. So this we don't see. That's why I, I feel safe to say that we are safely uh, above that physical lower bound. Even though right? demand for safes um, has, has actually increased uh, quite significantly. So, so, so physical safes, I mean, so... Yeah, that's, 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 I mean, that's interesting as a, as a kind of... Anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence, early warning signal, if you want, but it's it's macroeconomically irrelevant so far, so it's not it's not a macroeconomic issue. But it, it just but it's 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 interesting in the sense that we we have to take that physical lower bound seriously. It it does exist. I, I I stick to my view that it's well below the current the current level, but it does exist, and uh, it certainly sets a limit to how low uh, rates could go, um, unless we would move to a some kind of uh, fully uh, uh, electronized uh, 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 society, which is a Ken Rogoff right. view, uh, which I don't right. believe is uh, consistent with uh, social preferences in Europe. I mean, uh, nobody yeah. in Europe wants to, uh, uh, I mean, there's, there's a prevailing view of the people of Europe is that they don't want to move to a fully electronic we like, we like cash. Uh, society. Uh, Especially con the Germans. to Sweden and other places. <laughs> so there are, there are different social preferences right. here. Right. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and I certainly don't think that central banks should, uh, should steer that, that kind of discussions. We've, we've got to accept social, uh, social preferences here. Uh, so we're not going to move to, we're not pushing towards a, uh, a fully uh, a, a cashless society. Mm -hmm. um, so that's for the, so for the physical lower bound. When it comes to what I call the economic lower bound, which uh, Marcus Brunner-Meyer calls the reversal rate, which is broadly the same concept, um, 
it has it, it has to do with the uh, with the impact of negative rates on the uh, on the on the, on the uh, intermediating function of the banking system. It's not only about the, the PNL of banks; it's also about financial instability, for instance. That could be also an, a different channel that uh, the rates being very negative can uh, uh, enhance the, the risk of uh, of, uh, of asset bubbles and financial instability, which would in itself also uh, uh, hamper monetary policy transmission. So there are different possible channels. Um, we haven't seen that so far. Um, in the first uh, stages of, and that's that's what I ex explained in my in my speech last year. Uh, in the first stages or in the first times, in the early times of the negative rates, uh, we didn't see much of an impact on the bank PNL because there are different offsetting factors. So there is a clearly an impact on the on the net interest margin. Um, but only in part of the bank, in that part of the banking system which is exposed to uh, which is financed through uh, retail deposits and doesn't have the capacity to pass the negative rates to retail depositors. But that's much less visible for banks which are funded uh, uh, through wholesale markets, for instance, because the rate on wholesale markets has followed the downward trend. Uh, so there are different, there is a lot of heterogeneity here. And this has been compounded or offset, at least initially, by two other factors uh, working the other way around. First, there have been huge capital gains on uh, bond portfolios mm. uh, due to the, to the lower rates uh, in those banks who which were holding large portfolios, in particular of government bonds. Sure. And second, there have been uh, there is an ongoing reduction in uh, loss um, uh, in provisioning and loss impairments due to generally the better state of the economy and the de-risking that we see in the economy, which also has a positive impact mm -hmm. on the PNL of banks. So initially, the positive impact has more than offset the negative impact. As time goes by, uh, there is a risk that the negative impact will prevail. That's why it's not only about the magnitude, it's also about the time persistence. So the more, the longer we stay in a situation with significantly negative deposit rates, uh, the, the higher the likelihood that there will be a negative impact on banks and that the bank lending channel would be, uh, would be affected. So the time dimension is important also here. Well, that's what we also found with uh, Maria. We we had a paper on impact on, on bank profitability, and we were also seeing not seeing a strong effect um, at the beginning. But as you say, it's, it goes beyond the, the profit and loss accounts of, of the banks. Well, let me um, see whether there are um, uh, questions uh, from colleagues or audience. Uh, Grigory, perhaps? Grigory? And then Maria, yeah. And then, uh, <coughs> then I would open also to journalists. Uh, if I may, I have a... Does it work? Yep. Yeah. So I have uh, two questions. The first one is about, to come back to the predictability of, um, of monetary policy, given that's the main topic of today's presentation, uh, because the ECB provides um, a, a staff forecast for, for, um, for inflation and GDP, but not for interest rate. Whereas, for example, you know that uh, since 2012, uh, the Fed uh, provides you know, this uh, dot plot, uh, which is like the FOMC uh, participant assessment of uh, monetary policy. And they have it for three years, uh, which give us some good indication of, um, of the balance of power inside the FOMC. But they also um, provide a long-term uh, assessment. So basically, they provide a kind of steady state uh, policy rate. And I think that, that's quite interesting. That's even more interesting than the uh, short-term or medium-term uh, thing, because it gives us an indication of what the FOMC thinks about uh, the neutral rate. 
Uh, and for, for example, at the moment, the last time they, they provided it, uh, they see steady state uh, policy rates around 275-3%, uh, which means that uh, the neutral rate in the US, as assessed by the FOMC participant, is around uh, uh, 1%. So I was wondering, first, if you think uh, that this kind of dot plot uh, could be interesting for, for, for the ECB, because as you said, in fact, um, the market is not homogeneous, it's not uniform, uh, there is some kind of heterogeneity, but I think it's the same in the, in the governing council, there is also some kind of heterogeneity. So having a kind of dot plot would give us the, 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 um, the balance of power inside the, um, the, the governing council and therefore would give us uh, some useful information of where policy will go. And also it would give us uh, an, evo an even more useful information uh, at least uh, for geeky economists like us, like what, 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 what do you think the neutral rate is uh, in the Eurozone and therefore where, what is the, the steady state uh, policy right. rate? And if I may, I have just a second question because you have mentioned that several times in your, in, your, um, in your presentation. It's about uh, what matters for QE. Is it more stock or flows? Because you know there was this trade-off also inside the government council about doing a, a longer uh, but smaller uh, monthly amount of or, um, or a bigger purchase, uh, but for a shorter time. Do you think what's important is the stock, uh, so basically the, the size of the balance sheet, or, or, the, or the flow of purchases? So, um, on the, I mean, first let me start by saying that it's a good thing that there are different views in the governing council. Uh, almost by by definition, if there were if there was one single view in the governing council, we wouldn't need a governing council. Um, so that's why we have monetary policy committees because these are, as as, as the discussion shows, uh, these are very complex issues. There are very complex uh, channels here. Um, and uh, it's good that we have different views and that they are filtered through the governing council discussion. So if, if, the main, uh, if your main uh, request uh, is to know the balance of power in the, in the governing council, uh, there's a much simpler way to do it, which is just, just to disclose the votes in the governing council. I've always been in favor of doing that. This is not the prevailing view in the governing council. Uh, we've we've done, gone a long way in making our thought process more uh, transparent by, by publishing the account, which is already a big step. Um, and I'm pretty sure that at some point we'll take the next step, which is uh, just disclosing the votes as any other uh, uh, civilized central bank does. Um, and then you will know. Uh, this with, a with one condition that it should not prevent uh, the uh, kind of frank and honest and confidential discussion uh, inside the governing council, because you, you should have the right to change your mind, uh, listening to your colleagues. Uh, people don't have preset views. Uh, we, I don't have a structuralist approach to monetary policy where uh, 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 triple A countries would have to think like that, and uh, single A country, countries would have to think another way, etc. cetera. Uh, go governing council members are individuals. They are not representing their countries. Um, they are there to defend the interests of the Eurozone, and they have the right to change their mind. Uh, and it has to be a discussion. Uh, so at the end, I think the votes should be disclosed out of transparency, but there has to, we need that kind of filtering process where all the arguments are aggregated and, and compared, and, 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 uh, uh, and, and at the end, we take a view. So that's for the, for the general dynamics. Hmm. Now, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the, um, of the uh, dot plots, there are different issues here. Um, I think it, 
you have a point that uh, publishing some kind of expectation for rates would help uh, steer market expectations, uh, which would be consistent with the arguments I've put forward that central banks have to be on top of communication with markets and not being led by markets. So that would be an additional element to, 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 to steer market expectations. Um, that said, there are, there are a number of pitfalls. First, uh, what the FOMC does is publishing the expectations of the committee members. Uh, the ECB uh, projection is a staff projection, meaning that the governing council has uh, at each and every meeting the right to uh, uh, take distance from the projection and express a different view. Uh, and that has been a very important feature of our policy-making process, so it would be a big step to change it. I'm not sure we are uh, ready to do so. Um, also, some of the uh, variables you're referring to are maybe changing over time. So, for instance, assume we give a, an estimate of what we see as a medium-term real interest rate, or R, R star. Let's call it R star, right? Um, it changes over time. Uh, there are good arguments to believe that as the recovery kicks in, uh, R star will go up. I mean, one of the reasons why it's so low today is also because of a depressed, a long accumulated uh, uh, period of, of depressed economic sure. conditions. Um, high demand for safe assets, which might recede to some extent if the economy uh, comes back, et cetera, et cetera. So you would have to, uh, to explain why R star in five years may not be the same as R star today, just as potential growth in five years is not the same as potential growth today, uh, et cetera. Um, so that might be quite, quite tricky to communicate. Um, so, so far, we've not crossed that bridge. On the, um, on the uh, stocks and flows, um, I don't see it as a philosophical discussion. It's both. It's both, depending on, uh, depending on transmission channels. If you think of the, of the footprint of our program on financial mar on market prices, on term premium, on, on bond scarcity, uh, it's a lot about stocks. Uh, if you think of the signal we are sending to financial markets on what's going to happen between now and, say, 12 months, 18 months, it's a lot about flows. So we need to be, we need to be clear on both. I don't see it on, as, a, as an either-or. Okay. Uh, there was Maria. Uh, Maria de Merges from Bruegel. Thank you very much for this uh, presentation. Um, I would like to ask um, a question which, at least in spirit, actually goes in the opposite direction of what Gregory just asked you, and that is the role of communication in, an, in a very low interest rate environment. Effectively, that's a very unknown environment, right? We know very little about this environment. And, I mean, I you mentioned that the role of communication is much bigger in such an environment. And of course, I understand that in normal times, we understand transmission mechanisms, we know everything, so it's, there's less need to communicate. When we understand less, there's a greater need to communicate. But isn't that the paradox that you're asked to communicate about things you know the least about? Um, and you know, it surely isn't this uh, sort of a very prone to accidents. And therefore, uh, the the need, while I understand the need to communicate, the effectiveness of communication during very high levels of uncertainty is surely much less. So isn't an answer, and this is my question, um, that the role of communication changes when you're operating in normal times and when you're operating in very unknown times. One is to give the next steps through dot graphs or through announcing the interest rate or your forecast, but in times of very unknown unknowns, isn't mm. the role of communication about you know, basically steering the ship in the right direction rather than just adjusting to winds all the time? Mm. Well, I can't. I can't really disagree with your statement. I mean, it's true that it's true that we uh, we operate in a uh, a uh, um, uh, 
surrounded by a, by a lot of uncertainty, and there are lots of unknown unknowns, as you say. There's lots of, uh, lots of uh, uncertainty as compared to, as compared to, uh, to risk. Um, that said, we do take decisions, right? Uh, so, uh, so that I would, my answer would, would, would be back to the first discussion on accountability and, and the kind of democratic accountability and, and transparency duty of the ECB. We do take decisions uh, which have an impact on 500 million uh, uh, citizens or so. Um, we have a duty to explain what we're doing. Uh, and yes, there is a lot, of, a lot of uncertainty. We have to be clear and, 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 and honest about it. So uh, as much as we can, we have to be honest about what we know and what we don't know, and not claim that there are things that we know if, in fact, we don't know them. Uh, but we have a duty to, to communicate as, as, best, as, as best as possible. Um, because not communicating clearly would just add to uncertainty. So in, a, in an environment where there is already so much uncertainty, both inside the Eurozone and outside of the Eurozone, even, even more so today, uh, I think the central bank has, has a duty to, uh, to, uh, to provide guidance. Uh, we have a duty to help reduce uncertainty. And not communicating well would just add to uncertainty. So uh, it comes with risks. You're absolutely right. You, we might be wrong. And as I said in my speech, uh, this has not been always a, a gentle ride. Uh, because we, all, we, we ourselves had to learn from the, the evolving state of the Eurozone economy, financial fragmentation receding, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the structural change going on in the Eurozone economy, uh, but we've got to be transparent about it. I have no doubt about that. So the gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, I'm Helge Peterson from Nordea Bank. Uh, thank you for your presentation. My question to you is also around communication. Uh, I think it was last week, your Austrian colleague, Novotny, he was questioning the sequencing of the monetary policy tools, indicating that the Fed model maybe is not the optimal one for, for Europe. Uh, my question then is twofold, because I also heard from you that there's no reason to question the sequencing. Uh, the first question is, how do you want to avoid this different communication from the steering members? The second one is, by which, what event would for you be the one which could trigger a change in the sequencing, i.e. that you were hiking, say, deposit rates before you end uh, the QE program? Thank you. Well, I, I, uh, I started answering in my, in my, in my speech, uh, yeah. and by the way, when it comes to, uh, to, uh, to my colleague uh, Novotny, uh, in his latest uh, public statements, he uh, seemed to come back to, to the view that the sequence should not be changed. So um, um, uh, that, uh, that that latest communication is, uh, is uh, I think, uh, fully uh, fully consistent with what I just said. Um, what, what I'm trying to what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that the discussion on the sequence is legitimate, so it's not a taboo. Um, it has to be. Uh, it just has to be uh, rooted in the principle that I outlined. That is, it has to be a discussion on whether the incoming stream of information justifies having a different view of some of the parameters of our guidance. Uh, the uh, sequencing, which is in particular the level of the deposit facility rate, is one of them. But there are others, like when we say uh, we'll not hike, uh, we'll start, uh, we'll start hiking rates well past the horizon, 
What does it mean, well passed? Well, uh, there are different answers. <laughs> uh, the answers should be uh, an outcome of that, of, that, of that discussion. So depending on the economic conditions, the answer might be that, that well-passed means uh, uh, X month or Y month, uh, and that's a discussion we'll have. We, haven't, we didn't have it so far, so we, we very much believe that it's too early to have that discussion. Uh, one day we'll have it. Okay. Um, do I see any questions from the journalists, perhaps, or here for the gentleman here? Do, do you have any questions? I'm sure you do have some. So, so you, you, uh, let, let's get the gentleman, perhaps we collect those. Yeah, thank you very much for the speech. I'm Fabio Balboni from um, European Economist from HSBC. I, first, I had a comment. I think one interesting uh, point uh, of your sort of December, last December, was that actually you were working on different dimensions. So that, that, that might be one reason, certainly from our perspective, why the market uh, find it difficult to interpret. And I wonder whether you know, there is an element of there. Of course, you were working on the timing of the extension and you're working on the size. Um, and that probably changes a little bit the four organizing. It makes it difficult for market to come up with a straight uh, um, interpretation. I, I wonder if you sort of, you know, if you, if you also saw that and how sort of that also matters for your foreign guidance. And on the sequencing element, I was just wondering, you seem to attribute more the sort of the sequencing point on your sort of um, um, variable part of the four guidance. To me, that does seem to relate more on the structural side. Like it, it's more your view of the world, your type of the reaction function. But again, I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate um, on these. Thank you. Do, do, do we? Uh, do you? Do you have any questions? Yes. Okay, so then let's let's get your. question, and I'll be out of the job. Um, yeah. Okay. The one you, you mean if you don't get an answer, you'll be well, well, that, that is beyond, I guess, my, my control. Francesco Canepa from Reuters. Um, my question is about the change that you did make at the, at the latest uh, meeting. It was perhaps, at least in my view, not the most obvious choice to remove the reference that you, could, that you can use all available instruments, because I would have thought that, <coughs> that was pretty much a job description. A central bank can act using all available instruments. So of all the moving paths, of all the bits that could have a change, you perhaps choose one that was not the most obvious choice. And that perhaps is what upset the market a little bit. Um, so how happy are you with that change? If you could go back in time, would you make it again? And, and why did you choose that bit of the guidance? Was, was perhaps that a compromise, that no one wanted to change anything else? So, okay, let's go for this one, because it's a, kind of the, the weakest link. Thank you. And, and let's get also Alessandro. Uh, yeah, Alessandro Speciale from Bloomberg. Um, about all this discussion on, uh, on sequencing, I mean, the fact that you had a forward guidance in place uh, would have led people to think that for whenever the time, that when you started on the whole, uh, array of unconventional measures, you had a clear idea of how you would have gone out whenever the moment came. So why is this in discussion again? So the, the, the sequencing, the fact that the distance between the end of QE and rate hikes could be rediscussed. Didn't you have this discussion already when you decided that on that forward guidance? Let me perhaps add one last question, which is on the inflation numbers from yesterday, um, if, I, if I may. I mean, because in, in your speech, you seem to say we, are, we have moved towards neutral, um, sort of from bias mode on the risk side. On growth, on, uh, growth, on growth, I said. Sorry? On growth, I said. On growth, but okay, so it's sort of a little bit, let's say, less dovish. Uh, that, that was my sense. But yesterday's numbers 
I mean, were they just an outlier, or um, you know, how, how, how would you how would you put them? Okay, um, so starting from the end. Um, no, I don't think the. What I said is that I see the I see the, the risks being now balanced uh, for growth. Mm. Uh, the yesterday's inflation number is fully consistent with what with what the governing council has said that the uh, the uh, the improvement in headline inflation is not yet sustainable mm -hmm. uh, for reasons that are pretty obvious. That, that it's uh, it's uh, very largely due to, uh, to uh, energy prices and uh, and uh, um, and food prices uh, bouncing back, and we see uh, very little uh, pipeline price pressures. In particular, nominal wages remain uh, remain uh, on the low side. Um, and so uh, we are yet to be convinced that uh, that adjustment is, is sustainable, and that what we've seen yesterday, in, sen in a sense, confirms it. That uh, in spite of the continuously improving prospects for growth that we see in the flow of data on the real side, soft data and hard data, uh, we still have this fundamental uh, question uh, on, the, on the nominal side that we don't see uh, we don't see the price pressures being uh, being sustainable yet. Um, that will come, but uh, we're not yet there. Um, so yes, marginally more hawkish maybe on the on the real side, but uh, still uh, on the uh, on the uh, on the cautious side, on the on the nominal side. That would be my answer. Mm. Um, on the uh, um, on the sequencing and why that why that discussion on the sequencing is coming back? Well, you should ask my colleagues who raised it. Uh, they must know why they raised it. Um, I guess it, it partly that, that there might be different reasons, but it partly uh, ties to the discussion on the uh, on the uh, on the economic lower bound and the impact of the uh, deposit facility rate on the financial sector. As I said, the initial impact has been, I would say, net positive, but we know that over time the negative impact can can compound and accumulate um, um, uh, through the uh, the net uh, the net interest margin of uh, of European banks. Uh, so it's just normal that that sensitivity to the uh, potential downsides of the DFR, uh, in a sense, increases over time, uh, because it uh, it uh, 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 it uh, it's now biting uh, it's biting the the the, uh, the, uh, the profitability of the uh, of the financial sector more than it was doing uh, 12 months or 18 months ago. So that's why the sensitivity is now higher, I guess. Um, on the uh, on the latest meeting and the all available instruments, I guess that's. Uh, I mean, first, it reflects a a sense of caution and prudence which uh, has not escaped you, that we want to be prudent and and, and, and and patient in the way we normalize. So we 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 the direction is towards normalization, but we want to do it in a very cautious way, in a prudent way, because of that lack of uh, sustainability of the price adjustment, which I mentioned, and also because of the very high level of uncertainty that we see both uh, in, in Europe and, and, in, and mostly outside of Europe. Um, so the, uh, that reflects a very a cautious approach to removing the different uh, uh, easing biases or downside biases, starting with the one which, which is the most contingent or the most uh, related to tail risk, which, was the, uh, which is the all available instruments. So it's consistent with one uh, a remark the, I, I guess, the president made in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the press conference, which is that we see uh, the, the deflation risk now being off the table in the eurozone. So um, we, um, it's probably too early to qualify the, the, uh, uh, in a precise way the distribution of risks, but uh, the, the extreme tail risk 
which we which which so far we 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 could see deflation risk is now off the table, uh, and that's consistent. That uh, we see less of an extreme tail risk, certainly that that we could see a few months ago. Mm. Uh, finally, on the um, on the different dimensions and the um, the different dimensions of the December uh, of the December uh, communication. Yes, there are different dimensions, but as I said, there are, it's inevitable because you have the two legs, volumes and prices. You have to communicate on both, and there is an interaction. So the communication has to be uh, has to be uh, complex. Uh, we, uh, the way we work is that we have the introductory statement, which kind of uh, sets in stone a number of uh, elements of the guidance, and then we have the, the questions and answers. So it's also an important part of our communication that the, the president then explains, uh, clarifies uh, what uh, what the intention of the governing council behind the words that are uh, written in the uh, in the introductory statement. So that's uh, that's where maybe monetary policy is less of a science and more more of an art. Okay, please uh, join me in, in thanking Benoit for this uh, Q&A and also for the wonderful speech. Thank you very much, Benoit.